0: Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Nice to see you on this uh, long weekend. Um, I just wanted to uh, start off. We've been doing a a study uh, that we started this week, and it it had a really great quote from uh, C.S. Lewis, who's uh, one of my favorite authors. Uh, It says, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because Christ has forgiven the inexcusable in us. Or, let me put it a little more simply here, Hurt people hurt, and forgiven people forgive. And uh, today, I really hope that that's something we can, we can really think about and we can live like people who are forgiven, people who have been redeemed, people who, no matter what is happening on the outside, can have that joy of Christ in our hearts, that we can take that with us, that we can shine that light that uh, a lot of times other people don't understand, because we've got something, we've got that joy, we've got that life, we've got that grace living inside of us. Um, and that's something you can't scientifically explain, intellectually, um, you know, argue. It's something that's just, it's, it's real, and it's living, and it's active inside of us. So that's, that's our, our prayer for you today, is that as we are forgiven, that we would have that inside of us, and that we would give that gra- grace to other people. Uh, so as we, um, as we prepare for today, uh, I'm just going to pray for us. So please join with me as we pray. Father God, we thank you for today and the gift that it is. And Lord, we thank you for this time and this place where we can come as your people. God, where we can gather and we can uh, challenge each other, where we can encourage each other, where we can be moved by your spirit. So God, help us not to live as people... <laughs> who are hurt and who are worn down, and and God, maybe that's how we feel today. But God, in our hearts, we pray that you would stir us up, that God, your spirit would help us to live as forgiven people today. And God, that joy and that love that we would be able to share that with others who, who maybe don't know it, or maybe their faith is growing thin, and they just need that reminder today as well. So God, as we're here, help us not just to be people sitting in pews um, for an hour on a Sunday morning, but God, to be your church, living and active and ready to do your will. So God, whatever you have in store for us today, God, just help us to hold on tight and know that you are good and that you are faithful and that you are just. And we thank you for all these things in your name we pray. Amen. All right, we'll ask if you're able uh, to stand with us as we sing.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: God's people said, oh, "What a truth we just sang!" Thank you. You may be seated. Um, I want to take some time now to pray for our children as they go to Bible Town, and uh, we'll also take some time uh, to pray for over oh, the offerings that have been given this week. Um, as you will see, there's a few different ways that you can give. So we will uh, pray over our children and pray as well over the offerings given this week. So would you join me now as we do that? Lord, we are so grateful, as we just say, for, for your amazing grace. And When we remember where we were and, and where you've placed us today, we, our hearts are full of gratitude overwhelmed with joy for what you have done and for what you continue to do in our lives and we all, we look with great expectation for what you have in store and so we are so grateful thankful that you've forgiven us and thankful for the bright future that you've given us forever in your presence all because of grace thank you lord this morning we as we pray uh, for our children we we pray that um, that they that their eyes would be opened to see that truth to see that reality that you have forgiven them and that you have great things in store for them that you love them and so i pray this morning as they go to bible town that once again today, they, they might get another glimpse of, of who you are, that they might see Jesus, that they might know Jesus more, and that, um, that week after week, day after day, they would be able to, um, to get closer and closer to that point where they really, really, really commit to following you, to be a disciple of Jesus, and that they might be great examples to the other children Of their generation pray for their teachers that you would grant them wisdom and patience as as they speak about you and um, I pray that your that your Holy Spirit would fill them this morning to to say exactly what needs to be said and to do exactly what needs to be done for the glory of your name Lord this morning we, we remember that everything that we have comes from you you are our source without you we can do nothing without your provision We could do nothing we're grateful that you uh you give us each day our daily bread and so when we give this morning we we give uh, a portion out of what you have given us and we're thankful and we're grateful we thank you that you have chosen us to be a part of your ministry to be a part of what you're doing in this world and and so uh, we pray that you would use um, what we've given and bless it and may it be used for the advancement of your kingdom to see people come to know Jesus, to see lives changed for the better in our community, um, in our city, in our province, in our country and all over the world. Thank you for what you're doing and we're so excited to see what more you will do and thank you for choosing us to be a part of it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and we say thank you. And all God's people said, amen. All right, children, thank you so much for joining us for the first part of the service, singing so well with us, and I pray you have a blessed time in Bible Town today.
1: sister
3: Sincere thanks to the worship team for for leading us in that time of musical worship and praise to our God. uh, Thinking as we were singing that last song there of those lyrics to Man of Sorrows, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing, rude in my place, condemned He stood, sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Um, We have the privilege and the responsibility to come to the table of the Lord today to remember Jesus' sacrifice for our sin, not just for sin this thing that sometimes we want to separate ourselves from and and exonerate ourselves of, it was for our sin. It was my sin, your sin, that held Jesus there. We quote John 3.16. We love that verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But... We often forget how that chapter ends. Probably the least quoted verse in John 3 is verse 36, which says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Our sin, my sin. That is what we have to own When we come to this table, that is what makes the sacrifice of Jesus so enormous, so great. He wasn't just dying for sin. He was dying for sinners, us, our sin. And so today, as we approach the Lord's Supper, as I said, it is our responsibility and our privilege and our honor to proclaim the death of Christ Jesus for our sin. These elements of bread representing the body given, Jesus' body given for us, and the juice that we're going to drink in a moment representing His blood shed for our sin. These are a visible sermon to us, a tangible reminder of the gospel. They proclaim to us the great drama, if you will, the great drama of redemption in Christ Jesus, salvation in the present, for as often as you eat drink this bread. That's present tense. Salvation in the past, you proclaim the Lord's death that has happened. And of course, salvation in the future until Jesus comes again. In light of such a great salvation, my friends, the Apostle Paul warns us, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So, before we go any (laughs) further… Before we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, let us just take a few moments to examine ourselves, to ask God to search our hearts this morning, recognizing both the gravity of our sin and the weight of Jesus' sacrifice for it. So let's just pray in a time of confession. Our loving Heavenly Father, Your Word tells us if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, in these moments, that's what we want to do. We just want to take... Some time to confess to you our sins, Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for the forgiveness that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ and His blood shed, His body given for us. Today, Father, as we prepare to remember and celebrate that amazing gift, I pray God that, that you would be honored and glorified. that as we come to this meal, prepared, that you would remind us of the enormity of your sacrifice and your grace shown to us in Christ. So help us, Lord, in this time of meditation and celebration to eat this bread, to confess our sins, to acknowledge our indebtedness, and to be grateful for your amazing grace and your steadfast love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So if you're tuning in at home, invite you to prepare your elements. Hopefully, you have them with you. And if you're here, we can begin the process of removing the seals here. We have our wafer on the top in case you're wondering how this works. So don't just peel off that whole thick part. There's a little wafer tucked in underneath that thin layer of cellophane. So grab your wafer and then the next layer for the cup. So we do this in obedience of what Jesus commanded His disciples, that all who have repented of their sins have the responsibility and privilege to come and partake of this meal, this supper of the Lord, um, to its blessing and fellowship all followers of Christ, all followers of Jesus who have repented, that means turned away from their sin and surrendered in faith to Jesus Christ, are invited to come and partake in this table. If you have not done that, if you've not turned away from your sin and surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, we would ask that you do not participate in this, but simply observe what we're going to do here If you have questions, I'd love to chat after, hopefully answer them, or at least direct you to some good answers in Scripture. But uh, for the sake of our our purpose here, this is for God's people, and we would ask that only followers of Jesus participate. Um, So I'm going to hold up this cup here in a moment. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke the bread, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So can we just take a moment and offer a prayer of thanksgiving to God for the bread, symbolizing Jesus' body given for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the sacrifice. Thank you for Jesus, for what he endured, what his body endured for our sin. Father, we remember what we read in your word that tells us how Jesus was beaten, bruised, whipped, flogged. His his body was crushed, nailed ultimately to that cross. And Father, it was, again, our sin. This is what we deserved, and yet he took it for us. And so, Father, as we partake of this bread, help us to remember. Remember Jesus' sacrifice and the extremity of his suffering so that we could be set free, saved from your wrath. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Together, let us eat this bread in remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice for us and let us be thankful. In the same way, Jesus took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So now let us return a prayer of thanksgiving for the cup symbolizing the blood of our, Je- the blood of our Savior Jesus. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, once again, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus' blood shed. Thank you for the fact that it is his blood, God, that covers over all of our sin, all of our unrighteousness, his blood alone, because his blood is righteous, And Father, ours isn't. We are not worthy. Only Jesus is. And so, Father, thank you for his spilled blood, the blood of your perfect lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And that includes ours. And we thank you for that amazing gift. In Jesus' name, amen. This is... Is the blood of my covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin, said Jesus. So let us drink this in remembrance that Jesus' blood was shed for us to cover over all of our sin. And let us be thankful. Thank you, Lord. Well, we will move away from the table. And uh, I'm going to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to crack them open. It's a wonderful sound, the opening of your Bible. Um, You can turn in your pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring one, there's one in the pew in front of you. I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Acts chapter 8, and uh, today we'll be picking up our series in Acts, and I want to say thank you for your patience. I know that uh, we've been at it for a bit. We're not quite halfway through, but we're taking one section at a time and uh, just taking our time with it because I think it's really important we understand what it is that we're reading here. Uh, I think that's especially true of the passage we come to today. Um, If you recall, in our last message, I I showed you this slide. Um, Not sure, there it is there. I referred to this 2009 Barna survey that revealed the frightening ignorance of self-described Christians who were asked about their views of God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, Satan, and demons. And the survey revealed, as this says, that most American Christians do not believe that Satan or the Holy Spirit exists. Uh, translation, just to sum it up, most of these American Christians surveyed are not actual Christians. Six out of ten Christians in this survey agreed that Satan is not an actual living being but a symbol of evil and that the Holy Spirit is simply a symbol of God's power or presence, but not a real living entity. Well, through Acts 8, we were reminded that Satan and the Holy Spirit are very real. In Acts 8, verses 9 to 13, last time, two weeks ago, we saw the reality and deception of Satan in Samaria. Samaria through Simon and his sorcery. And in our passage today, beginning at verse 14, we see the reality and reception of the Holy Spirit in Samaria as Peter and John arrive on the scene and pray that the Samaritans might receive Him, Him, the Holy Spirit. Not an it, but a he. (laughs) He's not a thing, he's not a symbol, he's not an essence. He is a person, specifically the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Trinity. Just as God the Father and Jesus the Son are fully God, so is the Holy Spirit. He is eternal. He's always existed with no beginning and no end. He was here in the days of the Old Testament. He inspired men in the writing of the Scriptures He came upon certain people at certain times and empowered them to do God's will in amazing ways. But on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in a new, vital, and permanent way. Not to live alongside of God's people, but to live inside of them, to indwell the hearts of every follower of Jesus Christ. He came to teach us, to sanctify us, to comfort us, to lead us into the truth. It is the Holy Spirit who enables us to do the work that God has commanded us to do. Amen? Not us. It's not meant for us to do. We can't do it on our own. The Great Commission is great. We are not. God is great. (laughs) It is by the power of the Holy Spirit alone that people are saved. I can preach till I'm blue in the face, but unless the Holy Spirit of God is drawing hearts unto God... Nothing will happen. The Holy Spirit empowers us to obey God's commands, to be Christ's witnesses, to speak the truth in love, to bear His fruit. Again, that's not something we can do on our own. Indeed, it's the Holy Spirit who enables us to worship in spirit and truth, and ultimately to, to bring glory to God through our lives. The Holy Spirit of God lives in the hearts of God's people. Every genuine Christian is a living, breathing temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that? Really? See, we believe it, yes, and yet even amongst conservative evangelical Christians, I've noticed that there's an insecurity, an uncertainty when it comes to the Holy Spirit. It's not an uncertainty about the reality of His existence like those in that survey, but rather about the vitality of our relationship and our experience with Him. Talking about the Holy Spirit is not the same as walking by the Spirit, Keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, as we read in Galatians 5.25, Paul says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with Him. And when we fail to live by the Spirit, when we, when we fall out of step with Him and don't rely on Him, you know what that does? That causes us to question sometimes if, in fact, He lives in us. Paul asks "Uh." Uh-uh, uh Piercing question in Acts 19. We'll get there in the fall. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? If I asked you today, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but does the Holy Spirit of God live in you? I would imagine there's four categories of answers there. I would say some of us would say yes, I know so. Some of us would say, I really, really hope so. Some of us would say, I don't know. And others would have to say, I don't think so, no. And that's really something we want to make sure of. After all, the Holy Spirit is the seal, the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. This is what Paul writes in Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So we want to make sure we understand who He is and that He lives in us. So let's start with the basics today. Can we do that? Um, How does a person receive the Holy Spirit? Well, I believe the New Testament is pretty clear in its teaching that there is only one baptism of the Holy Spirit in the life of every follower of Jesus Christ, and it is a one-time act that takes place at the moment of conversion when a person repents of their sins and surrenders in faith to Jesus Christ as Lord. They are baptized in the Spirit, or as Jesus said, born again of the Spirit in John 3, And they're initiated at that moment into the body of Christ. And this is the case for every believer. This is what Paul confirms in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. We were all given the one spirit to drink. Okay. This teaches us that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a collective operation that includes every follower of Jesus Christ. And the past tense that Paul uses here makes it clear that this baptism of the Holy Spirit is a completed past action. Pointing back to what? Pointing back to Pentecost. When God first poured out the Holy Spirit upon the 120 disciples, and then a little later upon the 3,000 converts who hear Peter proclaim the gospel, they're cut to the heart, and they ask Peter, "What, what should we do in response to what you've just said? And Peter tells them, repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 people did just that. All believers share in this experience of Pentecost. But the question is, what part of that experience of Pentecost do we all share in? Because there's debate about that. The late great theologian John Stott put it this way. The 3,000 people who responded to Peter's message do not seem to have experienced the same miraculous phenomenon, that is, the rushing mighty wind, the tongues of flame, or the speech in foreign languages. At least nothing is said about these things. Yet, because of God's assurance through Peter, they must have inherited the same promise and received the same gift of the Holy Spirit. And it happened immediately when they repented and believed without any need to wait, He goes on to say this, this distinction between the 120 and the 3,000 is of great importance because the norm for today must surely be the second group, the 3,000, and not, as is often supposed, the first. With us, therefore, as with them, the forgiveness of sins and the gift of baptism of the Spirit are received together. The Apostle Paul confirms this. With this rhetorical question that he asks in Galatians 3. He said, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? And the answer, of course, is is that they received the Holy Spirit by believing what they heard. That is the normative way, normative way Christians receive the Holy Spirit. Faith comes through hearing the word of truth, Romans 10 17. That's the gospel. And when we repent and believe in Jesus Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. That's clear, right? Well, maybe not so clear when we come to our passage today. We haven't read it yet. Uh, We're going to in a moment here. But our passage today really throws things for a loop. It's been a, a stumbling block, for for many, many believers over the years. In fact, there's been great controversy over these verses, and we're going to talk about that today. There's two parts to our passage today. First of all, there's the Samaritan's extraordinary reception of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to call it that, extraordinary, and by that I mean extraordinary, okay? And the second part, we see Simon's outrageous proposition concerning the Holy Spirit, Now, just to review, we read last time when they believed Philip, that is the Samaritans, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great miracles and signs he saw. And then we come to our passage beginning at verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Pause right there. They sent Peter and John. This was amazing, amazing news that the Samaritans received the gospel and that news makes its way back to Jerusalem. Now keep in mind, the church in Jerusalem was the only church there was. It was the church. That's where the apostles still were. All the other believers had been scattered but the apostles were still holding the fort in Jerusalem and it was their responsibility to oversee evangelistic efforts and to go and inspect what was going on to confirm that the converts were real, that that these people were actually receiving the gospel, being saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. And so this is what Peter and John are sent to Samaria to do. Now, we don't know the exact timeline. It could have taken them anywhere from five, three to five full days to to walk there. But here's what we read in verse 15. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Huh. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them And they received the Holy Spirit. Okay. So, as soon as Peter and John arrive in Samaria, they begin to pray for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit because there it is the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. What is going on here? (laughs) They believed. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. How come they didn't receive the Holy Spirit? If that's the normative way this is supposed to happen, why not here? As I said, I believe this is an extraordinary passage because it is the only record in the New Testament of people believing in Jesus Christ, being baptized in water, and not receiving the Holy Spirit. It's the only time all of these things happen, which is why, throughout the history of the church, as I mentioned, these verses have been a source of great controversy. Entire denominations and schools of doctrine are formed specifically around the interpretation of these verses. And so, I do think it's important for us just to take a few minutes this morning to look at these different views so that we at least have a basic understanding of these different interpretations with the end of hopefully solidifying what what we should believe about this. I'm going to start with the classical Pentecostal view. It's held by many, many, many. I have many good friends who are Pentecostals. I joke, uh, Pastor Paul and I joke about being Bapticostal, we, uh, we, we love just the, how, how they are led by the Spirit and, and just so sensitive to the things of the Spirit. Um, but according to this Pentecostal view, when the apostles lay their hands on the Samaritans and they receive the Holy Spirit, they believe that is technically the Samaritans' second reception of the Holy Spirit that's taking place here. This is what Pentecostals call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which they believe takes place after the first initial work of the Holy Spirit in converting somebody. That is when a person repents of their sins and believes in Jesus Christ. They believe, okay, there's, there's some work of the Holy Spirit taking place there. But according to this pe- classical Pentecostal view, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something you seek after you come to Christ, and it's accompanied by the speaking of tongues. Why do they believe that? Well, even though it's not mentioned in this passage, it's not mentioned that the Samaritans start speaking in tongues when the apostles lay their hands on them. They do point to the fact that that's what the apostles experienced at Pentecost. So they are amongst those ones that John Stott was referring to who would say that's, that's the group that is the norm there, that the 120 apostles, that's what should happen when, when we are indeed filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, it's not just Pentecostals who hold this view. There are many non-Pentecostals who agree that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a distinct second experience of the Holy Spirit that takes place after conversion, but that it's not necessarily accompanied by tongues. Some will argue it's a second experience that can be accompanied by other gifts, like the gift of prophecy or, or other manifestations. However, based on this passage here, the language Luke uses in verse 16 that I've got bolded there, I think I can even underline it for you. Luke makes very clear that the Holy Spirit had not come upon any of them at all. It's really plain. There's no indication whatsoever of an earlier coming of the Spirit to make this a second one. Now, there's another school of thought that believes that this passage proves that the Holy Spirit can only be given through the laying on of hands, as we see there in verse 17. Through the laying on of hands. I know pastors... Uh, In fact, I've had some interesting conversations with pastors who who hold very firmly to this view. This is the only way to receive this this fullness of the Holy Spirit is through the laying on of hands. Uh, However, again, if if this is the case, then it's difficult to explain the 3,000 people receiving the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, along with every other example where there's no mention made of the laying on of hands at all, including Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch that we're going to look at. In, in, the, in our time next week, uh, the Apostle Paul receives the Holy Spirit. There's no laying on of hands there. In fact, apart from one other example in Acts 19, nowhere else is the receiving of the Holy Spirit connected with the laying on of hands in the book of Acts. One other interpretation I, I do want to mention to you is the view that the Samaritans had not yet received the Holy Spirit because they were not truly saved, Those who hold this view argue that it wasn't saving faith that they show, but a fascination, an emotional reaction to Philip's miracles, much like Simon's reaction, you recall? Simon himself is said to believe in verse 13, and they argue that the Samaritans' belief was basically knowledge about Christ in their heads, but not true commitment to Christ in their hearts. However... Luke deliberately reveals the false nature of Simon's faith that we're going to see in just a minute in order to distinguish it from the genuine saving faith of the Samaritans who received the Holy Spirit. According to verse 12, their belief in Philip's message was genuine belief in Jesus Christ. We know it, too, because when Peter and John arrive in Samaria, notice what they don't do. They don't re-preach the gospel as if these people didn't get it. Or is it Philip did a really poor job and they needed to have their theology corrected? No. They'd been baptized. And Peter and John don't re-baptize them in water either. It was good baptism. It was in the name of the Lord Jesus. They had done everything right. Peter and John simply prayed for them to receive the Holy Spirit. So the question is why? Why, when the Samaritans believed and were baptized, did God not... Give them the Holy Spirit, not pour out the Holy Spirit upon them. Well, I don't know for sure. I think God's ways are not our ways. I think there are certain things we need to understand, and and I will start with this. Context is really important. Always, always critical. We have this tendency to jump right to modern-day application with God's Word, don't we? We'll read something, and we'll just take that verse and plunk it into today. We want to be careful with that. Yes, God's word is alive and active, for sure. But he also teaches us to to understand it. The Holy Spirit leads us into the truth. And we need to understand, for this passage, the context here. Um, Acts is a historical book mentioned that the last time, describing how God established the early church and not necessarily prescribing how God continues to work in building the church today. Let me explain that. Though only God knows all the reasons why, I think the best answer to this is found in the historical relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. And I don't think this can be overemphasized because the the nature and magnitude of what happens here is unprecedented. This was the first time the gospel had ever been proclaimed, not only outside of Jerusalem, but inside of Samaria, of all places. And it's really tough for us to grasp the depth of hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. The, the Jews basically blamed the Samaritans for destroying the unity of God's people. For destroying their monarchy following the death of King Solomon. The Jews regarded Samaritans as filthy half-breeds. I've mentioned that before, because they had intermarried with Gentiles. They regarded them as religious heretics who had defiled Jewish customs and teachings. And in fact, many Jews were known to publicly curse Samaritans and pray against them. Pray, pray that God would smite them. And uh, do you, do you want to know who previously thought and prayed that way? The apostles. John, James, Peter, this is what we read in Luke 9. Um, In Luke 9, Jesus sends his disciples ahead of him into a Samaritan village, and the people there do not welcome Jesus because the hatred went both ways, right? The Samaritans hated the Jews as well. So when the disciples, James and John, saw this, this opposition to Christ, they asked, look at this, Lord... Do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Do you want us to ask God to burn these people to a crisp? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. I would love to know what that rebuke sounded like. Um, I think Luke's very gracious there. This was John's attitude before he received the Holy Spirit towards Samaritans. It would have been shared by Peter and the apostles. Why do I point this out? Because it's a reminder of just how big a bombshell this news of the Samaritans being saved would have been to the apostles and the church back in Jerusalem. (sighs) These are people that, that we previously prayed for God to smite, to wipe out. Our enemies, bitter enemies... And now, God has saved them by hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ? Wow. This is radical. Knowing the absolute importance of church unity, the Samaritans coming to Christ had the potential to tear the church apart or at least to create an isolated sect of Christianity. And I really appreciate the way theologian and author Frederick Bruner explains it in in his Theology of the Holy Spirit. If a Samaritan church and a Jewish church had arisen independently, side by side, without the dramatic removal of the ancient and bitter barriers of prejudice between the two, particularly at the level of ultimate authority, the young church of God would have been in schism, from the inception of its mission. I think the best answer to to why God withholds the Spirit is God is sovereign. God is omniscient. He knew that in order to avoid a potentially devastating split and to preserve the unity of His church, it was essential for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit in the presence of the apostles so that the apostles could see for themselves and testify to the fact that the Samaritans had indeed received the same Holy Spirit given to the Christians in Jerusalem. This way, there would be no doubt or question that these Samaritans were now to be embraced as brothers and sisters in Christ, full members of God's one church, which, by the way, is powerfully signified by the laying on of hands here. When the apostles laid their hands on the Samaritans, the Samaritans not only received the Holy Spirit of Christ into their bodies, but they themselves were received into the body of Christ, the church, in this symbolic act of unity and solidarity, the laying on of hands. It's powerful. Okay, so if I can sum this up, the way the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit in Acts 8, I would say is not normative. It is formative. Formative. It was formative. It's not normative the way that that God works today, I don't believe, but, but it was formative for the way God was working then and needed to work. By waiting to impart the Holy Spirit, God was able to establish the church outside of Jerusalem and inside of Samaria and still maintain its unity to the glory of God. Okay, that brings us to the second part of our passage today. Are you still with me? I, I've been warned uh, some people, uh, yeah, we're, we're good. Nobody's fallen asleep yet. All right. If someone's sleeping, nudge them. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given, at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, so remember Simon. He comes back into the story at this point. He has been watching everything that has been going on. We saw the last time, he, he after he believed and was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere he went because he was amazed by the signs and the wonders that Philip was doing in the name of Jesus. Okay, so this is a pretty outrageous proposition here, to say the least. Now, <clears throat> I want to point out a couple of things here. Uh, I mentioned last time, even though Simon was said to believe and was baptized, his motives were highly suspect. And that is confirmed in these verses right here. Simon himself did not receive the Holy Spirit. The apostles didn't lay hands on him, or at least there's no mention of that. But he watched as the apostles laid hands on the Samaritans and imparted the Holy Spirit to them. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what exactly happened when the Holy Spirit came upon the Samaritans. But what we do know is that it would have really been amazing to Simon. We know because of this reaction. I just want to say this. It's, I think, an important note to make that every time people receive the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, it is experiential. That is, there are definite effects that one can point to as evidence that the Holy Spirit has come upon that person. The ones mentioned in Acts specifically are the speaking of tongues, the gift of prophecy, praising the greatness of God, boldness and power and witness, and obedience to God's commands. So, did the the Samaritans speak in tongues? Did they prophesy when they received the Holy Spirit? Did they start praising the greatness of the glory of God? We don't know. But whatever happened, it was incredible. Simon saw it. And was amazed, and immediately he wanted in on this Holy Spirit thing. Now, notice, he wasn't interested in having the Holy Spirit live in him. That is, he didn't want to be indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit himself. He just wanted the power and ability to impart the Holy Spirit to others, just like Peter and John were given the power to do. And that's really what Simon was after here. Power for personal profit not just for money, but for control over the people that he previously enjoyed through his sorcery. We saw that the last time. And so he makes this outrageous, and I'm going to say blasphemous proposition, offering to pay Peter and John money in order to give him the ability to impart the Holy Spirit, seeing it probably as a great tool for his magic chest. Really. Simon was clearly ignorant about the nature of the Holy Spirit seeing him as as nothing more than an impersonal force to be used and manipulated rather than the divine third person of the Holy Trinity, God the Spirit, to whom we must yield and by whom we should live and move and have our being. And so Peter rebukes Simon. Here's what we read at verse 20. He says, "'May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right.'" before God. Okay, here's a paraphrase of verse 20. Peter in essence tells Simon to hell with you and your money. Even though he believed and had been baptized like all the other Samaritans, Peter condemns Simon as one who does not have the salvation of Christ. He's lost because Peter's given the insight to see that his heart is not right before God. But I love the the glorious and gracious buts in Scripture, but all hope is not lost for Simon. Because, my friends, there is no case too desperate for God's grace. Even though Peter has essentially damned Simon and his money to hell, he calls Simon in verse 22 to repent. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Hmm. Seeing the extreme danger Simon was in, knowing the corruption, the bitterness of his heart that was enslaved to sin, Peter urges Simon to repent and pray to the Lord for forgiveness. Uh, That is a gift right there, that rebuke, isn't it? In spite of all that that Simon had done, the sorcery, the, the witchcraft that he'd been involved with, the blasphemous proposition he was making, Here he was offered a chance to repent and be forgiven. And so then we see this response. Simon answers. He says, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. See, Simon was clearly freaked out of the consequences of his sin. And, and seems to be sincere in asking Peter and John to pray that, that none of these things would happen to him. But ultimately, we, we don't know. We don't know the outcome for him. W- was he really repenting here? Was he, was he willing to do that? We, we don't know. We're not told. Point is, I think this story is a sobering reminder and warning to us. My friends, first of all, it goes without saying, the Holy Spirit cannot be bought. <laughs> The prerogative and power to impart the Holy Spirit belongs to God alone. We don't always understand His timing. We don't always understand His reasons. But we believe and we know that they are perfect. We can't buy or earn salvation or the Holy Spirit or the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Salvation, my friends, is the most amazing gift of God's grace that comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And our spiritual gifts, the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us, are to be used to serve the church. God has given us specific gifts for that purpose, to to fulfill His will, to build up the church, to serve each other. Now, to be clear, there is no promise or expectation in the book of Acts that everyone who receives the Holy Spirit will be given the gift of tongues or prophecy. However, we do have the promise of Acts 1.8, that when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, Jesus says, you will receive power to do what? To witness. Power to be Christ's witnesses to, to anybody and everybody, ready to proclaim the reason for the hope that we have in Jesus, ready to share our faith, ready to point people to the truth." ready to show them through lives that are are fully surrendered to Christ that God so loved this world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus. People need to hear the truth, but beyond that, they, they need to see it lived out. They need to see lives that are transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. My friends, tragically, being filled and led and controlled by the Holy Spirit is not the norm for most of us. We've been talking about this last week. I know our brother, Ike Cameron, on an Anniversary Sunday shared a very powerful message about that. That is what we are called to be doing daily, to, to be filled. One baptism of the Holy Spirit, many fillings. To be controlled by this Holy Spirit, to walk, keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Sadly, that is not the norm for most Christians. And it should be. The way the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit was not normative, but formative. And my friends, for us, our normative behavior every day should be walking in step with the Holy Spirit, keeping in step with Him, being filled and controlled by Him continually. Um, this, is a, this is a tough passage and I just want to say thank you for bearing with me as, as, I, as I struggle through it myself. This does not answer all the questions. Uh, there's still a lot of questions I have about the Samaritans and why. But, but I, again, I do think that what we see here is that God has a plan and a purpose. And he used his timing here to establish the unity of the church in Samaria And it's a powerful, powerful demonstration to us that our God is alive and active, that he is at work, that his Holy Spirit fills us. And my friends, I pray that's the case for you. If you weren't able to answer that question I asked at the beginning, does the Holy Spirit live in you? My prayer for you today is that you would not leave this place before settling that question. The way we we receive the Holy Spirit, the normative pattern we see in Scripture is that when we hear the gospel, which you've heard today, when we repent of our sins and surrender in faith to God's Son, Jesus, who paid for our sins on the cross, we receive not only the gift of salvation, but we receive the gift of his Holy Spirit who comes to live in us, in our bodies, and to lead us into the truth. That is my prayer for you today. If you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord, that you would and that you'd receive his Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that sets us free. I thank you for that freedom that we share here, freedom in Christ Jesus. Thank you for your spirit who lives in us. And Holy Spirit, fill us, melt us, mold us, use us. Help us to do what your word says. Help us to be the witnesses you've called us to be, to shine the light of Jesus Christ into the darkness of this world, to be ready to give the reason for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ with anybody who asks it, and we will trust you to do the work of salvation in in them. Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for setting us free. Help us now to point other people to our Savior Jesus, in whose name I pray, amen.
2: You stand with us now, uh, if you're able, as we uh, sing this prayer here to the Holy Spirit.
1: sure, sure.
3: fall fresh on us. I invite you to join us for a time of fellowship in the gymnasium following the service. If you can stay, we always look forward to that wonderful time of connecting together. But now receive the Lord's blessing from Ephesians chapter 3. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen.